Are you watching closely? Every magic trick consists of three parts, or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it. To see that it is indeed real. takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now, you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it. Because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. You wouldn't clap yet, because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. Welcome to the Anything Goes Podcast, the best geek and pop culture podcast broadcast on Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rudy, and we're back continuing our Nolan marathon, our Nolan retrospective before the release of Dunkirk. And so as you can tell from the title, we're doing a review of The Prestige, the fifth movie in his feature film filmography. And like every podcast, when it comes to Christopher Nolan anyway, I have a certain guest with me. And is he with me today? Yes, I am. And identify yourself. I would. I. I am Justin Cirilla. I hope I'd be here if I were introduced. Otherwise, Pete, I'd get lonely for you. Yeah, you have I, to do this all alone. I, I mean, like I, I have to edit all this stuff by myself anyway, and, and like most of my writing, I do by myself. So it's already a lonely experience, uh, a lonely existence, I should say. I think stuff alone is the worst. I mean, it can and can't be. I mean, like if like you want to like just get away from people, editing is like one of the best things in the world mm. because like you mm-hmm. just. And theoretically, you get to play. It's like writing. It's like you get to play God for a little bit, pretty much, when you're presenting a, a something to the people or whoever. Like I, I get to create this up almost out of whole cloth at that point. And I think that's one of the best things about being an editor and everything. But creating things out of whole cloth and being, and you could say, well, we could editors could be magicians in one way. That's that's a hand-fisted transition. Oh, if there boy. ever was that one. Is... <laughs> I was trying to get well back. Well played. Country. It was, if I ever wanted to have a more hand-fisted transition, I think it was this one. But before I ramble on anymore, let's jump into our review of The Prestige right now. 
every review we do before we actually start breaking down the movie beat by beat. Let's talk about how our first experiences came about with this movie. Now, when did you first see this? I I, I remember you telling me about this one specifically, but I, I don't remember we ever had to talk about it on the podcast before. So. so as I often talk about on this podcast when it comes to me watching the Christopher Nolan movies, summer 2012. Right. Um, the first summer we had off in between – um, our time at Oswego. I went on like a Nolan bender that entire summer. Mm. Um, it's better than other benders I was on that summer. Zing! <laughs> um, Drug jokes! We got them all, people! <laughs> da, 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 da. I was referring to alcohol, but yeah. Uh, well, it is a, a substance that you're putting into your body that's affecting your uh, facilities. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, that's the most vague way I can I can make that work. So okay. go with me with that. So anyway, I one of the things about that summer was a lot of his movies were on Netflix, so that's why I was able to watch Memento and Following, um, and um, what's the one I don't like? The one I was Insomnia. Insomnia. <laughs> As you can tell, you re- you enjoyed so much you can't even yeah. remember it. it yeah, that. Kept me up for nights wondering. Oh, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, I was having like a really good day today, but then I, I invited a goddamn hobbit into my house. And you know what? Like, I, I deserve this anguish that I'm dealing with right now, but go on. So, anyway, uh, the Prestige is the one movie I wanted to see the most because uh, I started seeing trailers for it right after I saw uh, Batman Begins for the first time. Mm hmm. And it's got Christian Bale, it's got Michael Caine, it's directed by the same guy who did Batman. I was like, I was in 11th grade, I really want to see this movie. Um, never saw it, like so many other movies that come out and right. I never get to see. Um, so I went a long time without um, without seeing it. And then once I started to get back into my Nolan phase years years after it came out um I was like Gee, why isn't this movie on Netflix and so I couldn't just watch it I had to go out and get it but that summer I was really short on cash um because of of being away at Oswego oh I think you're for, saying your crippling alcoholism was, oh, <laughs> was the one you were I mean for. that probably didn't help either okay <laughs> that was that was the re- that's how I Got broke up in Oswego. Well, yeah, I mean, like, that's how you deal with college. You have to cope in one way or the other. Exactly. <laughs> Especially when you're in a... Tundra. Dead-end town like Oswego. Ooh. Uh, it is a one-horse town. I wouldn't call it a dead-end town. I'd say go a little bit south of uh, oh, of Oswego. Fair point. Very good <laughs> Not point. Not Syracuse. It's a smaller town. No. So little... oh. Fulton. I don't care. They can hear us talk shit about them. That's a terrible town. No, I can see, like, it, I can see uh, the morning edition on Monday, like, hey, a podcast talked about our town, guys. <laughs> we, should, we should throw a parade for these two goons. So, anyway. So, June goes by, July goes by. I haven't seen the movie. It's, like, getting to, like, two weeks before we go upstate, and I finally have a little bit of money saved up, so I'm like, let me go and see if I can find this movie. Mm. And I remember I went out to the Best Buy that was five minutes away. They didn't have it. I went to like um, 
Kmart and maybe another Best Buy didn't have it. And I was out all day and I remember it was a pouring rainstorm that day. Like one of the worst I've ever seen on Long Island. Mm. And I was like, no, I don't care. I'm not going home until I get this movie. So I went up to the mall, was able to find it in Barnes & Noble, uh, along with a, a very good um, um, DVD slash Blu-ray version of The Princess Bride. I remember I got that that day as well. Um, went back home and immediately started watching it. Um, and it was so good and so confusing. I watched it twice in one day. <laughs> I watched it the first time, loved it, but was so confused for reasons we'll explain later in the podcast. Right. And I, I want to say it was like a Friday night. I had nothing to do. So I'm like, just going to go watch this again. My, yeah, exactly. I, and I once I watched the second time, I liked it twice as much as I did, and I understood it about eight times more than I did. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. I had kind of like a little bit, not a similar experience, but I mean, I remember seeing trailers for it, and I remember it was the same. It was a weird way of how Hollywood works sometimes, where you have two very similar themed movies come out in the exact same year. Like you mm. have dueling asteroid movies. We have Armageddon and Deep Impact. You have, yep. du- you have like dueling volcano movies with Dante's Peak and Volcano. And 2006, it was another one of those things uh, with The Illusionist came out in 2006. Oh, that's right. As well as The Prestige. And the, the, um, that one had, I think it was, it was Edward Norton. And Edward Norton, I think Paul Giamatti, I think they were the stars of The Illusionist. I have not seen it. And I do, like, I almost kind of kicked myself. I wish I did watch just for, if there's any, other than it's kind of Victorian era kind of magicians, which is a very peculiar subgenre. It's not like it's buddy cop movies. I'm like, okay, I could see two of those coming out in the same year. Mm-hmm. But do like like yeah. a pair of magician movies at the turn of the century, I'm like, um okay, that's a bit uh peculiar. And so I didn't see it when it came out, but I remember I, I'm pretty sure when like it came out on DVD, I think my mom like I'd rented it and we watched it together and I was like, huh, this is interesting. And like you, the first time I watched it, I'm like, wait. What? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hold on. Take my glasses. Yeah, hold on. I'm going to put on his glasses right here. And now he's taking them off. With confused... Just the glasses. Just, and just, and just, I can't even see if you had a confused face. That's how blind I am. <laughs> well, I put on your glasses, I'm like, ooh. I'm like, I'm like oh, no wonder he needs these. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then, like, it was one of those things. I'm like, okay, that's that's interesting. Okay. And then... Getting more into Nolan, like, re- like re-experiencing, like, Batman Begins and then Dark Knight, I ended up going back to the Prestige, and then it's one, like, every time I went back to it, I discovered more about it, and the more I fell in love with it, mm. and and it's gone to become, like, I, I'm not going to bury the lead here, this is my favorite Nolan movie, and it's funny, like, um, I think it's his best. I do think it's his best movie, and I remember I'm like part of like one the real fans for real movies uh, fan page on Facebook. I posted like I'm watching it this afternoon, and then uh, one of the other major contributors is like no one's best movie, and I'm like because I was almost almost gonna write it, but I'm like I don't want to spend all fucking afternoon defending myself yeah. like in a bare knuckle <laughs> uh, a boxing match or something like that. But I was like, whoo, guy milks takes takes the bullet for it, throw him down the gauntlet there, and I commented like I agree, uh, but I, I didn't. I, I was too much of a weenie to uh, say that outright. Weenie. <laughs> Junior, 
Uh, like now, does the magic just a lonely SpongeBob sitting in the weenie hut, just like huh. when everybody prays in the dark night? But I think the Prestige is no one's best movie. <laughs> That's what the meme should be. Um, and it was funny. Like uh, earlier this week, I shot a, a short film of a friend, uh, an actor, and we were, I was waiting with him, so we so we made sure to get back on the right train back into New York City. And we brought up Crystal Nolan, and I said Prestige is his best movie, and he's like, "What?" And I'm like, "And so I'm like, all right, yeah. just crack my knuckles, yeah. I'm like." All right, let's go. And just wait to think I was going to have to have a verbal duel about it. And I will get into my reasons why throughout, and especially at the end. And it, the, the one conceit, the one reason why I think it's his best movie, and it's because setup and payoff. Every good, every good movie is kind of based upon, like, every like, good story is that you set up something in the beginning and you pay it off later. I mean, you go back to some of the simplest stories ever, like, uh, to get the... Um, Gift of the Magi, which is kind of like an oh, story by O. Henry. Like, oh, two people want to set up things at the beginning of the story, and they end up selling what they what they desire in order to please their uh, other person in the relationship, not to realize, like, oh, I got you this, but, like, now you can't use it because you sold your hair, and this is a hair clip. And, like, I got you this nice chain for your watch, but I sold the watch to get your hair clip and everything. And so <laughs> it's stuff like that and really basic storytelling that is done in such a succinct manner in The Prestige. And it, it once you realize what the movie is, it just becomes, like, it looks so seamless and so effortless. But mm-hmm. then you're like, no, it's not effortless, and it's actually really difficult to what they be able to pull off. But... Before we pontificate any more about it, let's actually talk about the movie itself. All right. <laughs> the opening scene, which sets up everything. Yes. Where we have the uh, uh, voiceover by my cocaine uh, as Cutter. Well, even before the opening scene, what about the uh, the opening shot? Yeah, I, I, I guess I guess there that shot, the little bit of Christian Bale's narration saying, "Are you watching closely?" All the way up until. And your Hugh Jackman falls into the okay. tank. I consider that a, a, the opening sequence. The opening scene, okay. And I, I, even though it's like it's it's different locations, everything. I think it's like nice little. It's a prologue, pretty much, I like how we defined it. What do you think of the prologue the first time you watched it, and what do you think about it the second time you watched it? The first time I watched it, it's like, okay, he's just explaining like you know how magicians work, what um. You know, basically how they perform their act. So I'm like, okay, he's trying to explain what, you know, his partners are doing. Yeah. And at the simplest terms, to a young girl. Mm. I'm like, okay, makes sense. When I saw it the second time, now knowing what had happened, I'm like, okay, not only are you introducing us this concept of um, the prestige that runs throughout the movie, which is like the ultimate goal. Like you have to have a mind-blowing twist in your act for it to be successful. Mm. Which is what what both uh, main characters are striving for in this film. Not only is he setting that up, he's setting up Pretty much the entire movie for us um, through Borden's eyes, which is you're taking a simple man, ordinary man, you're doing something to him, and at the very end, you're making him disappear and then bringing him back. Yeah. It breaks down – a magic trick is broken down to three parts. 
the pledge, which is the setup, the turn, which is where the magic trick actually occurs, and the prestige is the revelation, the reveal at the end. And it's and you think about it like it, it is, it is a perfect story structure. You have your beginning, you have your conflict, and you have your resolution. And so, and then and you're like, oh, this and it seems so simple, and everything kind of broken down like that. But anything with a Nolan movie, of course. It's not simple. Nope. Nope. Just Chuck Testa. A little realistic mount. If you want to find some really funny YouTube commercials, people, go look up Chuck Testa. Uh, and you will... <laughs> endless amount of entertainment out of that. Nope. <laughs> uh, so, we see Angier, who is played by Hugh Jackman, gets into this big contraption that's shooting sparks all around. Christian Bale is taken up like he pretends to be a observer from the crowd of the, the, this magic trick that's going on in the theater, sneaks down sta- backstage saying he's part of the act with a fake beard and mustache, goes on the stage and sees like there's a trap door and there's a huge tank of water, Andrea falls in, gets locked in, and drowns. And it cuts to Michael Caine playing Cutter at a trial out for, because Bolden is, is considered to be the, he's... Accused of being the murderer of Angier, Boulder, uh, Bolden played Borden played by um, Christian Bale, and I just found it really interesting because because like the opening sequence, like we have this, we see like we find out what Cutter Michael Caine does that he's an engineer and his pronunciation of engineer in his accent, and I think that's French. That's French for engineer. Uh, okay. The reason why I said the reason why like I was confused by that because he has because he has a very working class accent like he he's very pushing his accent really hard. If you movie. watch it with the subtitles, they put in italics to make it clear that it's um it's a French term. Oh okay, and then we see Borden with uh, missing two fingers on his left hand. We see his daughter and we see Fallon, the assistant to Borden, the engineer, the engineer, his engineer. Um, and like, how did he move? And like, the one, the, the one of the prosecutors asks uh, Michael Caine, like, how did he move this giant tank of water under the stage where uh, Mr. Ang- uh, the Great Danton, the stage name for Angier, how would he be able to move that with that five hundred gallons in there? Well, he's a magician. Why don't you ask him? <laughs> and my terrible Michael Caine impression there. Um. And then we, after that, after like he's been convicted of said murder, we we cut to the prison of where Borden is being held. And I find it really interesting when one of the one of the people who have are in, uh, setting interest in this movie gives him uh, Angier's journal. But before that, when he walks in the prison, like the camera's really low and behind him, it's very much like the shot when Christian Bale walks into the prison in Batman Begins. Mm. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, that's the same goddamn shot. I see what you did there. Uh, uh, you who you try to pull the wool over my eyes, guy. And then so he starts reading the journal. And I, I realized something about this. The structure of this movie is nonlinear like Nolan's movies. It's things that we brought up before. And it's interesting because a lot of the structure is predicated upon journal entries. If you go back to novels written in the 19th century, a lot of them were based upon, like, structure-wise, like, journal entries. Like, you think of, like, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein's done mm-hmm. the way. Bram, St- Bram Stoker's Dracula's done the way. And it's a very simple way to get the audience in. 
And then we find out his journal and his reading the journal is based upon Andrew was reading Borden's journal. So you yeah, have, you have flashbacks within flashbacks, honestly. Yeah, that that was also the really confusing thing about this movie the first time I watched it. And I honestly think out of all the Nolan movies that plays with time, and as you just mentioned, nearly all of them in some form do. Other I, than like The Dark Knight and Insomnia. Yeah, those are the only two that don't. I think this is the most confusing to follow because in Memento, it was pretty much, I want to say it was obvious that it was being torn reverse, but you could obviously, you know, work that out. Yeah. Um, and then when you saw the stuff that was happening in real time, there was, it was, um, uh, monochrome mm. it was black and white yeah so there was a sort of hint that this is somehow different than the rest of the movie right um with batman begins it's kind of just like a flashback while he's in um while he's training with Ra's al Ghul after the opening mm. um and that's really about it more or less um in this movie it's it's all over the place, and it's very difficult to keep track of when exactly is this watching is this happening. And one of the ways I think kind of helps the kind of voiceover narration. Yes, that helps the audience as well as that we see Hugh Jackman die at the beginning of the movie. Yes, and all of a sudden we see him alive, and in identifying himself in America, while mm-hmm. we know the rest of the movie is taking place in England. So there are. Storytelling conceits that are planted so you know, okay, where we, we know geographically or timeline-wise where we are in order to kind of ground it. And it's funny because because Angier uh, goes to America to go see Nikola T- Tesla to find out how he helped Borden per- perfect the transported man, believing that it was some kind of technology that they were able to do that. And so... He's the only one, like, staying at the hotel, and he goes up to Tesla's uh, facility, and uh, who are we introduced to while he's up there? Ellie, more commonly known as Gollum. Yes, we have Andy Serkis come out, and it's it's cool to see Andy Serkis being um, an actor who's not a motion capture yeah. creature. And he is a really fine actor. Yes, he, he is, like, and that's the one thing, I, I, I've had this conversation with you and with others, he is going to get a special achievement Oscar mm-hmm. in his lifetime. He may not get like a best actor on or anything like that. However, he probably will get a <laughs> I won't make it sound like a participation prize or anything, but uh he w- I hope that the academy would acknowledge him for his work. I mean, he's done so much uh, obviously with um how far motion captures come not just in Movies, but, I mean, you look at video games, virtual reality stuff. Mm. I mean, a lot of that started with the work he did for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, and but he's, he's a traditional actor in here, and he yeah. comes out, and he's threatening Angier. And it's funny, because uh, I'm not, like, is Andy Serkis English uh, originally, or... I can't, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, yes, because, um, when... 
if you listen to the Lord of the Rings uh, commentaries, he has an English accent for it. However, in this movie, he has a very New York accent. And it does. It's uh, even to the point that both you and I kind of make fun of it a little bit. The Great Danton. The, the Great Danton. Yeah. I, I saw you seven times in theater. Yeah. I know a guy down in Brooklyn that sells a mean, mean veal parmesan. It, and it's just like this. It's not a bad thing or anything like that. It's just like, if you want to be silly about it, you, you have. It's really strange because you're out in the middle of Colorado Springs. You're expecting, like, you know. Some, you know, the old prospector and, you know, some, something like that. And you, instead you get this, like, really New York guy. Which I guess makes sense because Tesla, aside from working uh, a lot of his time in America in Colorado Springs, did spend and ultimately died in New York City. I didn't realize he almost he lived into his 90s. I did, that surprised me when I was looking up. And he was Croatian uh, originally. And I do find it funny that I think this kind of started possibly the kind of cult movement for Tesla. Yeah, I, th- I think it – I'm not sure to what extent it did, but I do think there is something there. Yeah, and not saying anything bad about it whatsoever, but it's just like – it's funny because it, it's just uh, – at least people our age or a little bit older kind of like – kind of rallied behind Tesla as – and he's finally being like recognized for his – Achievements and stuff. Got a car named after him now. Yeah, Edison doesn't have a car named after him. No, I mean like how many other things have been based upon Edison's designs and everything. But and it's funny that you bring up Edison and Tesla because we find out Edison and Tesla's rivalry is going on at the same time during this movie, and it seems the point where later on Edison's men burn down Tesla's facility near the end of the movie. And I do find funny that Edison and Tesla's rivalry kind of parallels. Borden and Angier's yeah. rivalry. I realize that on this uh, this viewing, but so Angier says that he comes to Tesla looking for help, wants them to build the machine that he built for Borden. And Ali's like, I don't think we can do that for you. He's like, Well, I'm gonna be staying at the hotel indefinitely. So, and I have plenty of money to pay. So, <laughs> and then it cuts to in the past where we see them working, uh, both Angier and Borden working for another magician named Milton, and. Angel's wife Julia is the subject of the uh, trap, or not trap, but like an illusion where she's dropped into a, a giant glass case filled with water, and she's supposed to escape. She's an escape artist, and it's funny. Ricky Jay is the actor who's playing Milton, the the uh, magician here. Yeah, he plays like a bunch of magicians because he's a magician in real life. Ah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, so I and he, I think he was a kind of like an on-set uh, consultant for this too. So okay. I'm like that makes sense. So I and uh, like even at one point like she he was a Bond villain at one point he, he, as like a henchman and he even had like there was a deleted scene where he had like a deadly like uh throwing cards like of a deck of cards that was like, like razor tipped. The Joker. I, and like I'm like why did you keep that in that movie? I mean like it would have given something more to do and I'm like ah well whatever. So and then, so we find out that the trick goes off without a hitch and everything, and like everything, everybody claps like, hey, Julia got out, she's a great escape artist. Cuts to the next scene, which is under the stage after the performance, and one of the many lines that you, Larry, and I will quote until the day we die, <laughs> when Bourne raises his uh, issues with working for Milton. He's predictable, he's boring, and... 
And it's funny because Nathan Crowley, who's the production designer on most of Nolan's films, this is the only 100% pure set he built. Everything else is kind of either on location or it was the universal backlot for like the exterior stuff. And everything else was like, all right, we just modified it. But this is like the only true set they built, which I find kind of fascinating. And in this scene, we have like the, with uh, Christian Bale talking about like, well, if we change up the knot, it'll look a little bit it'll look a little more convincing for Julia. Like, like she's really tied up when she goes into the, into the, uh, the glass case. And there was like, no, because of, as, as cutter brings up, like, no, that knot's not a, a water knot. It'll soak up the water and she won't be able to get out. Set up and pay off everybody. That's a setup. Don't worry. Um, and I find I find it kind of interesting because, we later find out, like, Angier comes from money. He's American, and Borden's kind of working class. And that kind of sets a weird dichotomy between them. It's kind of like the separation that I think it kind of plays into their conflict. Would you think so? Yeah. I'm not sure how much... It's not overt, but... It's not overt. Maybe subtly. Um, though Borden, Borden does have a couple of lines that hint to it, specifically about getting your hands dirty, it's almost like, I feel more from Borden's end than I do from Angier's end. Mm. Borden is, you know, don't they mention he's from... America. No, uh, Borden. Oh, Borden. Don't they mention he's from, like, Manchester, which, um, we knew a guy in Manchester, I've... Thought there was like a throwaway. A throwaway. This sounds line. familiar, but I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I, like, I anyway, yeah. Um, he's from a working class, you know, turn of the century, um, you know, English family. Which, I mean, if you can recall back to what you've learned about turn of the century affairs here in America, it's not too different. No. You know, lots of factory working. Um, in fact, that's one of the reasons why, um, Borden wants his daughter to, um, become the ward of, what's the name of? Oh, Lord, Lord, uh, uh, Lord Caldwell. Caldwell. Caldwell, yeah. Cordlow? Cordlow. Cordlow. Well, I think that's how, I think that's how I pronounce it, but, um... Yeah, so he, so like she wouldn't have to deal with the same life that he did. Yeah, and so you you get like this sort of you know antagonistic or um very mild jealousy, I want to say because like this guy's already rich, I'm not. I'm just trying to make like a life for myself, and this. This American idiot just keeps interfering in it. Yeah. And, like, Andrew asks uh, Cutter, like, what do you really know about him? Like, ah, not that much. Which is going to play into the fact of what happens at the end of the movie. Because, obviously, if they knew more about him, it would have solved so many issues later on. So, and then we see Borden meet Sarah, who's watching over her nephew at at another magic trick that's going on. Where... A bird disappears, and her, Sarah's nephew starts crying because he thinks the the magician killed the bird, like with the collapsible uh, cage. But it brings the bird back, and it's like, "What about his brother?" Like, "Oh, aren't you a smart one?" And everything because 
it turns out it's true. It was a collapsible cage, and it killed the bird, mm-hmm. and they just had a second bird as to be as part of the prestige. And Sarah and Borden start going out, and I love that one moment where like they they go back to her place and the land, and she said the landlord probably wouldn't want allow men in her uh, apartment. And he's like, well, you don't think a cheap lock like that's going to keep me out? <laughs> as a nice little flirt, as he leaves, she goes in, locks the door, she turns around. He's in the apartment because, of course, he's a magician. It's a little creepy, actually. Yeah, like, I mean, like, <laughs> what if what if Houdini was a pervert? Like, that's how you question it. Like, like if Houdini was a peeping Tom, what would you do? Oh. <laughs> I don't about that. <laughs> I do not know much about Houdini's life. I'm going to curious. I'm going to look him up later on to see if he had any idiosyncrasies about him. Um, and so we get to see another performance between Milton, uh, Julia, Angier, and Borden with the same escape artist trick. But this time, Borden decides to change up his... At least looks like he changes up the knot for this trick. She goes in the tank, curtain comes down, and just like last time, uh, Cutter starts his stopwatch, and he has an axe with him just in case. Time runs out, and she's not out of the the case yet. They pull down the curtain, she's struggling to get out. Cutter tries his damnedest to break the glass open with with the axe. Eventually does, but... Too late. Too late. And so Julia, who was played by, um... Piper Pirabo, uh dies, and it's like, oh shit! Now, it it and now later on, when like at her funeral, Borden comes to pay his respects, and Andrea asks him, "Did you do you know which knot you used?" And he says, "I don't know." <laughs> which Andrea responds, "You don't know? You don't know?" Another line that you we all the three of us would always quote. Now, do you think he knows? I think, I think the version of him which made the knot knows. So you don't think that was? I I think that was the other, right guy. Okay, spoilers, everybody. <laughs> when we find out that the, 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 the ten-year-old movie, yeah. twelve-year-old movie, the, the transport man, how Borden does it, he uses his twin brother. That's the, that's that's the trick that he uses his twin brother to do the trick and like he switches places with his brother from time to time and he, he, the one person would be Borden the other one would be Fallon who would be a guy in heavy makeup and clo- and like heavy like clothes so you can't really tell who's who and so the person who went to the funeral did not know which knot was used which I, I kind of doesn't make sense like wouldn't you send just send the person that did the uh yeah I mean which like was well, something I want to do next time I watch this movie. I want to watch each scene after that, after Julia dies. Every time after this, every scene that Christian Bale is in, I want to figure out who's the who's the real one in the scene. Is it Borden or is well, it Fallon? First, you have to come up with a, uh, I guess, a qualification. Which one is the quote real one? I say Borden is. Yeah, but which. I mean, like, they were both Borden. Yes. I mean, but, like, there is a slight difference to the performances. Like, like because Fallon um, has a little bit of a harsher tone when it comes to dealing with Sarah. And, he, like, he does not have right. the affection to her, that much affection to her, where Borden does. But how do you know that was Borden? 
Well, I think the the one the date was Borden, the first date. What, what I'm saying is, what makes one Borden, the other, for a better term, not Borden? Like, what, like what are you saying? Like, what, like, what, like, what are you asking? I'm saying that there's no difference between the two men. They are I do, both Borden. I, I do. I think no, because one is playing Borden, one is Borden. And it's, since Fallon is so quiet and, and discreet, you can kind of get away with both playing Fallon. The real performance is somebody who is a Borden and B playing Borden. I guess I don't know. I think. I think they both enjoyed being Borden. Yeah. So that's why I'm hesitant to just call, just only distinguish one of them as Borden, because they are both, in my opinion, Borden. They might be different versions of him, but they're both the same person. I mean, like, you think of the dinner scene after they get Fallon back from being buried alive, that is clearly Fallon at the table yes. dealing with Sarah. Um, uh, the one where he's showing when he's showing the the bullet catch trick that is definitely regular Borden. That is loving Borden. I think that's a good way of distinguishing them. Distinguishing them, you know, loving Borden and um, uh, Borden with the mistress. Yeah, I, I, who loved. Who loves Scarlett Johansson instead? Can't Louis. blame him. No. Um, so, Andrew, like, it's weird because, like, after we see the scene, uh, after his wife drowns, we see a scene of him kind of drowning himself, which I wonder, was he trying to kill himself at that point? I think he was. And it's funny that he's, if he was trying to kill himself, and then B, how he's getting used to what we're trying to feel what drowning was like, which is something that's going to play into the climax of this movie for sure. And so agony, he, agony as, as cutter would say. And it's weird. Okay. So we have a dead woman as a plot device in the movie. And so it continues the kind of trend where women are not the most important people in Nolan's movies. Sadly, I would say, not the most important. I think they used the, the catalyst for yeah. the movie itself. Yeah, I mean, she's MacGuffin at this point. Yeah. That kicks off their tit-for-tat revenge relationship. And so Borden goes off on his own to start his own magician career. And the first trick he wants to do, the first like public exhibition he does, is ending with a bullet catch, which is like how... You put, like, the gunpowder, you put the bullet in, you stuff it down. But how you do it, you actually take the bullet out with the the pipe that's 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 putting the bullet down in the barrel. And so they're doing that, and it's, like, to, like, a very heckling crowd in some, like, seedy bar. Yeah. I mean, like... This is not a place I would want to pull out a gun in. No! It's just, like, he's like, trying his, like... odds are someone else has one. Yeah. And I love the fact that it's, like, he's trying his, like, early tricks and nobody gets his shit. And they're just kind of yelling at him. I mean, they're heckling at him pretty hard. At one point, they started throwing beer bottles at him. <laughs> Who threw that? <laughs> As he would question the crowd. And he's like, fine. And he, and he says, screw it. He pulls out a gun. And everybody's like, whoa! We oh. <laughs> just has got a gun, everybody. We probably shouldn't have been so mean. <laughs> and he's like, "All right, I'll give it. I'll give it to you. I need a volunteer." So, they, Fallon, who's standing by the side, chooses a volunteer. And who's the volunteer? 
The Great Danton. Which is the name that Julia was going to give, that gave Angie before she died, which is like, that's what his stage name would be. And it's Hugh Jackman in disguise. <laughs> we asked the question again. Which one did you die? And he's like, I don't know. And Fallon realizes who it is, tries to grab a gun, gun, the gun from Angier. It goes off and blows off two of Borden's fingers. I mean, like, I've seen people get shot in movies my entire life. For some reason, this is really painful. Yeah. I don't know if it was just Bale's performance or what, but it was something I'm, I'm watching and I'm like, I physically winced at that. Well, they cut right to the... The part where it, it's like there's, you're, he's missing the top half of two of his knuckles. Yeah, like it, like like nubs, With, like yeah. that's what's left of them. And I'm like, ooh, jeez. And they're like, ouch, that that's gotta hurt. Yeah, that's that's painful. But then what we find out that when the revelation comes is even more painful. Yeah, because <laughs> because in order to pull off the illusion that they're both the same men. Fallon has to lose his fingers. Oh my god. Oh, that's And not like let's not let's not cut them off. Let's use a hammer and chisel. Yeah. Oh. Whew. Look I got an email. Sorry, my phone went off. <laughs> like you see, even my phone was realizing like, whew, that was rough. But um And it's like, oh jeez. And then we go on. I like how right before he's just like downing an entire thing of whiskey. I mean, wouldn't you? Probably. <laughs> and then he puts on, he puts like a piece of wood in his mouth so he doesn't do, bite off his tongue. Do you think as, as Angier is lining up the shot and, and, uh, Fallon's watching this, do you think Fallon's thinking, please, if you're going to just like shoot him, kill him, that way I'll have to harm myself to look like him? <laughs> For comedy's sake, yes. <laughs> But then again, it is, your, it is your sibling. You don't want... And he's kind of your meal ticket, so you don't want to lose him, so... Yeah. I think he could have survived just as a... You know, by himself. Yeah, I mean, like... Uh, I mean, he wouldn't have had to do the... I mean, so exact... Essentially what happens at the end of the movie anyway. Yeah, however, he's no, he's not rich at that point. He hasn't he hasn't made his wealth from the transport man trick, which is what he's doing. And so... Angier teams up with... Uh, with Cutter, decide, like, all right, Borden's going to continue being a ma- practicing magician. I want to take him on with my own tricks. And it's at this moment when they go into their first workspace and everything, and they're designing the birdcage trick, which is kind of like an app, a vest apparatus that pulls the pieces of the cage in up his sleeves. And it's very steampunking, looking at very, like, heavy springs and everything. And that's when Scarlett Johansson comes in as uh, the assistant. And I always forget that she's in this movie. Yeah, she kind of is just... I want to say she's there just for the name. But, I mean... She has very... Minimal implications on the plot. Well, there's one big implication that she... Contributes yes. to near the end. But, um... Yeah, but she's just simply there for the to be an assistant... And be a showcase piece for the public... And now it's <laughs> kind of like why she's in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> and and that was like wish I'm just like ah oh, why hasn't no one worked with her again? Because like, I think I'd want to see her come back and to work with him in another movie, but now she got stuck in the Marvel universe, and so she's been kind of occupied with that. And 
And it's in this moment when, like, they're doing all this stuff, and when they're doing all the preparations, and I realize this is how gorgeous this movie looks, and I'm like, Wally Pfister really knocked it out of the park with cinematography-wise. And I think one of the reasons why you buy this world and you're so believable, along with Nathan Crowley's production design, is that it uses a lot of handheld camera work. It doesn't look so staged. It doesn't look so... Like, the artifice is not showing. Mm-hmm. It seems like, like the kind of documentary feel that it has, it seems like, all right, you could be there. And do you think that's effective? Do you think do you think the handheld camera work works? Do you think it's distracting? I think so. Especially the scenes where um, where there's a performance going on on stage. Right. A lot of the shots are either from behind the stage or somewhere in the audience. So mm-hmm. it gives you the perspective that either you're a stagehand working on the uh on the show or you're actually in the audience and oh, go on and i think that's a, a effective because it's sort of it's putting you right there um where the action is there are very few um high angle shots mm. on the stage in fact just going through them i can't remember anything everything's low angle from either below the stage or from at the same um, level that the stage is on, so it sort of, it gives you that feeling that you're right there. It's not that this um, bird's eye view of everything, and it's even like in the bar scenes, um, particularly later on the in the film when they're um, talking to Angio's double, um, it's like that very intimate shot, like right next to each other like you could be there ordering a beer mm. and it's funny like you mentioned that because the different perspectives whenever we cut to the audience it's always we're not we're never like it's never a close-up coming from the audience's perspective yeah. it's, it's always very wide and very open so you see the rows in front of you and everything so you seem like you are separated from the action that's on stage however you cut on stage it's like a little bit closer, a little bit like using longer lenses. So you have like the, the space is compressed a little bit. So you're like, okay, you know what kind of psychological thing that is doing to the audience. Like, okay, we're the, – most of the audience is separate from the action in this point. And then when you're on stage, you're like, okay. And like a lot of the stuff, when it's in the audience, like it's very stable. It's on like the dolly. It's on a tripod. And it's all handheld for the most part on when it's on the stage, which is very interesting. And so – Cutter decide perfects the disappearing birdcage. They book a few dates, and like the first like exhibition they do, they need volunteers to make this really work. So they bring up two volunteers from the audience, a man and a woman. The woman puts her hands on the front and back of the uh, cage. The man puts his hand on the bottom of the cage, and then a hand with three fingers puts it on the top of the cage. And it's it is Borden in disguise. Whew. And so, with a really nice beard, with a very yeah, very yeah. Uh, a very Jesus beard, he's got going on right there. <laughs> I'm just like, I was like, Jesus, what are you doing here? Um, and he tears at the cage, and the springs get fucked up, and the cage uh, bars kill the bird and get implanted in the woman's hands. <sighs> and, and, and I'm like, that's another one. I was like, Oh God, ow, Whew, that hurts. Yeah. And then, like, Cutter's just like, well, we'll uh, we'll do better next time. Next time. 
You wouldn't, and the guy who's running the, the uh, theater is like, you're out of here, guy. I hired a comedian. And I hate comedians. Like, it's like that's how bad you screwed up there, guys. You know who that guy? He's the same guy that plays the um, uh, the old man in the uh, Impossible Astronaut, the Doctor Who episode. Really? The really old um, NASA agent. NASA or NASA? NASA. <laughs> I was like, my yeah, God. I went... Uh, Dipped into my Long Island accent there. Yeah, that or Bahamas. I'm like, oh, like one, one of these two, one of these things are not like the other. I I started talking like, <laughs> like <laughs> Alley. Yeah, because when our New York accents yeah. became very prominent. Near we should do all the show talking like this. Oh, I find then after that point we get introduced <laughs> to Tesla, played by David Bowie. Oh my god, <laughs> I forgot he was in this film. It's always a treat when he shows up on screen. It is. What do you think of his performance in this? Oh, my God. Terrific. Just absolutely tremendous in a very limited role. But the moments he's on the screen, he just takes a lot to outshine Hugh Jackman. Yeah. He outshone Hugh Jackman. By doing so little. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it's just because we're enamored because it's David Bowie. We respect him. We we still respect him as a musical artist. Yeah. Or the fact is, like, he just had such a magnetic performance that you can't take your eyes off him. I'm not sure. And it's funny. Like, when – like, he's he's obviously acted before. He's acted like the man who fell to earth and a bunch of other things. Um one time during the 80s, before the first Batman movie came out, when there was so many different directors and casting going on, like when they decided, like, Warner Bros. like, all right, we're going to do a Batman movie about the Joker, David Bowie was one of the first people considered to play the Joker. Mm. And there was one scene in particular that was described where it's like he's walking down the street and he sees, like, a homeless person and he says, hey, like, hold up, like, a, a cup for money. Like, hey, I need some money to get a bite. And he would kneel down and he would, like, bite his cheeks and everything. He's like, there you go. You've had a bite. And I'm like, you seen like, gelled back hair of David Bowie in the 80s? Like, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I guess they were under pressure to cast him or anything like that. <laughs> uh, the king of these bad puns. Let's dance. <laughs> Just dance. Uh, well... Ground control. Well, let's move on with the podcast. Oh my god! <laughs> so we finally get to see Borden's really big magic trick the, for the first time: the disappearing man. Now, the first time we watched it, did you? I was as shocked as as Angier was because <laughs> you're like because the first time we don't see it really. We like we see the setup and we see the prestige on their faces. We never we don't really get to see it. On stage for the first time, because Cutter and both like Angie and the state and the audience, because it guts from like what the disappearing man is like. It's two booths on the stage. Borden drops a ball, gets into one booth, ball bounces from one side of the stage to the other. The second booth opens. Borden catches it, and you're like, "Wait, how does that work? What? How can he be in two places at once? That's not possible. That's not true. It's impossible." Sorry, because I have to... Whenever the word impossible is used in a sentence, I, I immediately go to Empire Strikes Back and you rolled your eyes at me, Mr. Star Wars, yourself. Yes? I have 
have no words. Uh, well, I, I, I am speechless. I am without yeah. words. <laughs> For once. <laughs> Mr. Talking of yourself. Anyway, so they're trying to and so Cutter, Angier, and Sergeant Hans's character are like trying to figure out um how do you do the disappearing man? And it's like Cutter's insisting that it has to be a double. There's no other way to do it. I mean that that's the end of the movie right there, guys. You can turn it off. Yeah, because uh, uh, spoilers. Spoilers. It, well, that, we've already spoiled it. Yeah, that, that's how he does it. And I'm like, and it's curious because it's like, you know what? Like, it shouldn't be like you expect it from them. It shouldn't be that simple. Yeah. And I think from an audience perspective in this movie, like he says that uh, he kind of says it's a double. And as an audience, you're like, no, it's not a double. There's no way. I mean, like, it's like, because, especially because it's, everything is so escalating uh, stakes as the movie goes on, like, there has to be, especially if you introduce Nikolai Tesla there, and you're like, there's science being involved, like, there's got to be something else to it. There's got to be something more to it. Like, you are along with Andrew's kind of mentality, like, you know what, this, you're unaccepting of how this is done. But... They re- they all concur that his presentation of it is terrible. Yeah. So let's do it our way. But we need our own double. Enter Gerald Root. Hugh Jackman plays a... How would you describe him? Drunk. Well, yes. And is very drunk and... Uh, aloof's not the word I would use. If Matt Jackson and... And uh, Robert Angier had a... Um... A love child. That that would be rude. <laughs> and I love like he's got the kind of he's got the fake teeth in it and everything. Or like at least Hugh Jackman's wearing fake teeth to do distinguish the two. And so they come up with their own teleported man, and it's a success. But Andrew kind of feels bad about it because he's taking the state. He's taking bow under sage, and he needs to do it this way because of roots like uh, accent so strong he can't be used for the setup. Yeah. Um, and it gets to the point where somebody tipped like that. Born gets to root, saying, like, "Hey, you have the real power here because he's dependent on you." And so Root starts to fuck with him a little bit, like taking his sweet time to do to do the actual uh, trick itself, and eventually. Because how it's done is like it's, it's two doors on stage, and there's a trap door where uh, Andrew falls through and uh, Root goes up. Andrew goes down at one point and is supposed to land on uh, safety pads. One time, they're not there. And I just feel bad because he's just like, leg. And you hear that. And it snaps. You're like, oh my god. Like, I didn't like say it like now and just realize how much bodily harm is in this movie. Lo- looking back on this film, the more I watch it, if you. Look at one of the first scenes of the movie when he's in Colorado Springs. You notice him walking around with a cane with a limp. Yeah. And you're kind of just like wondering, why is he limping right here and not anywhere else in the film like, to that point? Yeah, and just like everything, like I said before, everything is a setup and it'll be paid off later. And obviously that, that's the payoff there. And... Once he realizes his leg is broken, he's agony. He re- looks over to the other side of the stage, and that's where Borden is. And he goes up, and he's tied up. Root. He he's dangling from the rafters. <laughs> oh, they're great! 
Danton. If you want to see the real teleporter man, see it my show across the street. And another line that we contagious. Another line that we always quote as he runs off into the crowd to go from his that theater to the other. What does he say, Justin? <laughs> and do take it easy on the poor chap. He does try so very hard. It's, uh, and you use that in so many situations that it always pisses me off because you do it like it's like a trigger phrase for me. I'm like, because you're just like, because usually I'm kind of infuriated and you say that and I'm like, just to push me over the edge. And I'm like, oh, you son of a bitch, I'm going to drown you. Well, yeah. it's already been examined in this movie. <laughs> Twice. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, I think you said it last night at one point and I'm just like. I'm pretty sure I did. At, well, we're at the bar and I'm just like, oh. Yeah. I think at that point you said, "All right, let's go home." Yeah, and like at like one point, like you and Nikki have busted my chops and everything, and it's like, "Why are you being adjusted?" Like, well, he's with an arm's reach right now. That's why I'm going to beat him up right here. Um, and so we get, and so we cut back to Colorado Springs, and while at the same time, Olivia Scarlett Johansson's character has been sent off to spy on Borden at this point. She's fallen in love with him. Oh. And it's like, oh, Jesus, this is getting complicated more and more as it goes. This deal's getting worse and worse every all the time. <laughs> Shoehorn more Empire Strikes Back quotes in here. I'm altering the show. Pray I don't <laughs> alter it further. Um, but she's able to get the journal away from Borden, and so Andrew, that's what Andrew's been reading the entire time. And he reaches the end of the journal... Oh no, he doesn't get the he doesn't get the end of the journal, not yet. But later on, like he kidnaps Fallon, and I love that moment where Borden's walking down the street, Angier is following him, and Fallon's following Angier. Angier darts down an alleyway, Fallon follows him, falls through a classical uh uh staircase, and ends up in a casket where Cutter is, is nailing him shut. And he shoots, he shoots through the casket, and it, it wings uh, Michael Caine. And I love this moment where it's see if if Fallon had that gun in the the bar where a, everyone I want to say had a gun. You see, he could have shot Angier then before he blew off his fingers. That way, he didn't have to get him having to chisel off. Well, I think that was the that was the lesson learned. Like oh, yeah. after that point, he did carry a gun on him. But after he shoots to the casket and he wings Michael Caine and he's like, it saves me from cutting you an air hole. <laughs> I don't know why. I just love that delivery right there. And so... By the way, why has he got a gun with only one bullet in it? I mean, because like... Is he, J- is he Captain Jack Sparrow? Was he marooned on an island? Because we later see Angier near the end of the movie have a six-shooter to deal with a certain situation. That probably would have been helpful. But then again, he was out west where... Six shooters were kind of more frequently used and everything. America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 let's move on. Before I, before I get depressed. Anyway. And so, in order to... He needs uh, the key the key phrase to deci- decipher... Uh, decipher the, the uh, journal. I'm like, well, I didn't, why did I pronounce it like that? Like Now, just like uh, my uh, pronunciation skills are kind of falling apart on me right here. What What, what are you doing? <laughs> what is wrong with you? What is wrong? <laughs> or as like one of my favorite phrases from uh, Full Metal Jacket. What is your major malfunction, numbnuts? <laughs> which I, I say to myself often when I realize I'm screwing something up, which is like on a daily basis, but oh. moving on. <laughs> um, as Olivia's fallen in love with Borden, yada, yada, yada. Uh, 
uh, love triangle continues, Ugh. and we find out the keyword not just a love triangle, a lot a love square, quadrangle, rectangle, rhombus, rhombus. You see, I should be able to speak Spanish because I make it to grow my yeah. R's so easily. You're a lot better than I can. Well, and, 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 <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, it just cracked me up because it sounded like, just like your Batman. Uh. Uh, yeah, that's what it sounds like. So I'm going to roll my R's in Spanish. Uh. Uh. <laughs> in the words of the Comedy Central Batman, you think the answer to my riddle is buh. Uh. Oh, man. Anyway. And so we find out the keyword to deciphering the uh, journal is Tesla. And so we cut back to Colorado Springs and we realize the we get to the end of Bourne's journal where the last entry is like, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> it, it was a fake out. I knew you were going to get this journal anyway. My, my secrets are not in here and Tesla never built anything for me. So Andrew's pissed at this point. So he goes up to tesla's facility where they've been experimenting on his top hat on the tele- the transported man and he's just like edison's people are in town right now i have every reason to go tell him that you're living up here and and destroy and should burn down your your home because you're taking my money and my confidence because i thought you built something for him well we never said we didn't what i was told you was true from a certain point of view son of a bitch and at the time at the same time like it's like all right uh, tesla's like you know what top hat's not working let's try it with something else let's try with a cat and ali's like my cat sir you're fully responsible what happens to that animal (laughs) i love your tweet that you said out the other (laughs) night because it's so true tell the audience what you said i'm watching this the other night and i get to the part where Literally, there are hundreds of cats on the screen, and they pull every, every cat sound effect from, uh, from their archive, I guess. All right, let me pop the tweet, because... Yeah, because it was so... I want to read it verbatim. Yeah, because it was so eloquently stated, and I, like, and I lost it when I read it. I was like, oh, that is perfect. And I thought about that while I was rewatching because it was every archival cat sound was in that scene yeah. and I'm like it, it, it was jarring the man who has the copyright for all cat meow sound effects must have made a fortune from the prestige cat emoji <laughs> and because Andrew's leaving the facility and realizes the two cats are fighting and it's all the top hats and you're realizing wait the machine works and my favorite line in the movie when you're trying to figure out what's going on and they're examining like Ali, Tesla, and Andrew are examining the top hats. <laughs> yes. Why is, not why this, this work? Sometimes, Mr. Andrew, an exact science is not always an exact science. science. Because I'm like, if you know any, any scientists, friends or family, you know that's the truth. Um, My favorite line in the movie is actually a little bit afterwards. He goes, take your hat. Which hat? They're all They're your hats, Mr. Andrew. <laughs> um... I just want to rewatch the Tesla seats again now because I just love uh, Bowie's performance. And so we have a scene between Sarah and Borden's relationships becoming strained. And it's been strained throughout the movie. Yeah, but it's gotten worse because of Olivia's Scarlett Johansson's character being in their world pretty much. 
And he, Sarah believes that, uh, I keep just putting my fingers into this, the square there as that love square that's going on there. Just like, yeah, yeah, that's a love rectangle. And, um, at this point, like, we have this, uh, scene where, like, they've gotten Fallon back, they're at dinner, and, like, they're really upset about what's going on, and Sarah's like, they can't take it anymore. And this is, like, one of the things that kind of, like, I really question about this movie, because Sarah realizes what Bourne's real secret is, that he has a twin brother that's in hiding, in plain sight, and she was going to tell Olivia the following, like, to go tell her, but Olivia never met up with it because she couldn't bear to face her, because they're just like, yeah, I'm sleeping with your husband, and, and like, I'm, I'm tearing your family apart, I'm a, I'm a homewrecker right there. <laughs> I mean, just my, I mean, speaking of homeworkers, uh, one time we were up in Oswego where it was a, we're at um, there's hurricanes with Larry, and it's like when the bachelor party came in, <laughs> and like, like we hear it's like a bachelor party in there, and then like right because the wedding was the following day, Larry goes up to like, hey, are you getting married tomorrow? Holds out his hand, hi, my name's Larry. Are you getting married tomorrow? My name's Larry. Yeah, it's just like, I'm like, we're gonna add links to another thing to his resume. Larry Bergen, homewrecker. Nothing ever happened, but, oh but like, god. for comedy's sake, it was like, oh my god, I for- oh, We've actually gone a really long time without a reference to that, like, probably at least a year without a reference to that. Yeah, I'm surprised we didn't bring that up when Sebastian was down here <laughs> and visiting us a couple weeks ago. I... <laughs> <laughs> now I want to relive that night again. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, like, it was many nights that were, that were fun in hurricanes, especially, uh... Joe Clement taking like a, a certain photo and everything, and uh, I'll tell you, I'll retell you that story off air. Okay. Oh God. Oh uh, yeah. So <laughs> if it involves Joe Clement, who knows what could have happened. So Edison's men have found Tesla's facility burnt to the ground, and then we see that he left him, Mister Angier, a box at the hotel he's staying at. And one thing, like especially one of the filmmakers that definitely influenced. Chris Nolan was Stanley Kubrick and like just like his kind of perfectionism and everything. And you look at like how the machine that was kept in its traveling case, it looks like the monolith from 2001. And I'm looking at, it, I'm just like, I'm looking at it. I just want to be like, boom, 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 boom. I want to take that music and put it underneath when the experiments, go, the trick is going off and see how funny that is. And at the same time, when, Borden gets to the end of Angier's journal. It's another, it's another plant. It's Angier saying, "Ho ho ho, my <laughs> secret's not here." It's just like, a, like a couple middle fingers in, in written form, pretty much. It's like, "Ho ho, you think you got me with uh, your journal? I got you with my journal." Ha ha, ha ha, ha ha, ha Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> and so Angier returns to England for a limited amount of shows. He doesn't. He wants Cutter to help him, but not be part of stage hands, but part of the management. One hundred shows. Five nights a week, and then he's done. And we get to see the machine in action, where that Angier is in the machine, the sparks go off and everything, lightning storm happens, he disappears, and a moment later, he's across the theater. Not just across the stage, but literally on the other side of the theater, in a moment. And everybody's like, duh. Duh. How, How do you do that? And that's where they say that's the real magic lies. We'll get to how that happens at the end. So, 
And so the relationship between Borden and Sarah has come to such a boiling point that Sarah kills herself. I have problems with this. Yeah. What do you think about this? Never really a big fan of this move. No. It's... I wonder if this is... Because this is based off a book by Christopher Priest. I wonder if this was in the book or not. I have not read the book, but like I, I, I'm curious. But I'm like... It seems so out of character because she's a mother and everything and she's abandoning her daughter. I don't know. It just seems so... Contrived's not the word. It just... And we're really not with her throughout a lot of the movies. She's in a couple of scenes here and there. But you really... You get the kind of feeling that she's really upset about um, what's happening between her and Borden. Mm -hmm. But you never really get the feeling that she's... Actually, you know, there is a scene where she is, like, heavily drinking. Mm, yeah. But uh, But still, there's... I mean... I, I always find it a bit of a stretch for, like, that to happen. And, and like, even you were saying yesterday, like, you were you were shocked that... Because you, you forgot that happened in yeah. the movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I hadn't seen it and probably about... Two or three years, so I had forgotten the scene where she goes up into his um, his uh, I guess, uh, studio, or um, prop room, mm. and finds rope literally hanging around, right? And then says, "Hey, I want to be that." Like I said, she didn't want to hang around Borden any longer, so. Mm. <laughs> I mean, she cut the knot and everything, and, uh, yeah. And it's like, oh, jeez, I'm like... Kind of does fit in with, like, um, novels of the time. Like, you know, woman so heartbroken that she ends up killing herself. Right. And it, it just seems like it's like... Novels of the Victorian era, not the novel that... Came out, because this came yeah. out in 95. But, like, yeah, you know, you see, that was quite frequent like a plot device that happened in those kinds of stories I mean like hell like how many Shakespeare stories have like uh, of like happened that was like that was also 300 years before that yeah but I'm saying like, there's, like that, that is a storytelling device that has been prevalent in, yeah in England yeah and so Borden tries to figure he's trying to now raise his daughter and trying to figure out the trick but he can't do it he can't wrap his mind around it like there's no way he should be able to be able to get that distance in that amount of time and so we finally we catch up to it, the performance where Borden is at, and we go down, we see where he's trying to get Angier out of the water tank, where we see at the very beginning of the movie. Are you surprised that he tried to get him out of the tank? No. I, I've never been surprised with that. Because as much, as much as they have a professional uh, rivalry, I do Never thought that Borden really wanted to hurt him in any way. Mm. Um, embarrass him and um, ruin his reputation as a performer is one thing, but to actually go about um, injuring him, which he never really does throughout the movie. He's just like trying to mess with him even though he's been shot at he's been 
he said his uh, sidekick kidnapped. He's been like the are target. Me, are you telling me his Robin's been kidnapped and put in a death trap? Yes. <laughs> and it's funny that that his first name in this movie, that guy who played Batman is now playing a character named Alfred in this movie. Mm. Anyway, go on. Mm. You know, Robin's a cool name. You should use it more often. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck! Oh, I will get to that revelation when we get to Rise of I We'll have a field day there. <laughs> Just stay tuned, listeners. <laughs> anyway, um... You always had this sense in the movie, especially the more times you watch it, that Borna is just trying to live his life, and Angie just wants to ruin it in whatever way possible, even if it means killing him and ending his life. Yeah. Um, but really, up until the end of the movie, Borna just wants to, I guess, just let things pass. He doesn't want to hurt Angier. Mm-hmm. And so when he sees him drowning, he's like, um, this isn't good. No. I don't want you dead. Yeah, and like, it's like, he tries to get him out, and you wonder, like, in the back of my mind, is like, is he did not want to get implicated for this? He doesn't want to get blamed for this? I think that's partly why, but I also think he just didn't want Genuinely didn't want yeah. him to drown. And he does try to break the class and get him the hell out of there, but sadly, he's not there in time, and Angier drowns. Angier dies, and that's where, that's how the movie kind of ends and so we cut back to born in prison dealing with like all right i'll give you everything to lord caldwell uh cordlow about all my tricks as long as my daughter is taken care of and everything and lord cordlow comes to see him and who is this lord it's rangia and you're like wait you're dead how the hell are you back and then and he's like, oh. And he's like, well, here's the secret. Here's the secret to my, my trick. Like, huh, I don't need it. Just rips it up and throws the paper away. And you're like, oh, my God. So he ruins this guy's life and he takes his... Well, he doesn't take his child away from him. Well, he means to. He means to. Okay. Is it unforgivable for his character? Um... I'm not sure because the alternative is the kid goes off to um work in a factory. Yeah. So that's not too good either. No. But it's it's more like the fact that hey, I took your entire life from you, and now I'm also going to get to raise your daughter instead of you. It's kind of a dick move. Yes, and even like so much so that Cutter comes to see this Lord trying to reason with him, and he discovers that it's Angier and in. That's that's his family's name, pretty much. Interesting thing with uh, Hugh Jackman when he's playing Lord Cold Caldwell. Yeah, he's got a very very minor British accent to his voice. Yes, and it's, it's one of those things that, like, like we said with this movie, like certain idiosyncrasies and certain things that are so subtle that you do not know the first time around that warrants and rewards repeated viewings. I only picked up on that. Probably the last time I watched it. Right. And so Borden gets to talk with Fallon really quick before he's sent off to the gallows. And at the same time, 
Angie is going to see off to make sure that the his uh, machine is never used again. And it's cross-cutting between the two of like the machine being put back into the theater and never going to be seen again. And Bordland is uh, hanged. And his last words being abracadabra. Classic touch. Of course. Should have been abracadabra on himself. Boo. Which I do think that that was totally the word that, that inspired abracadabra. Yeah. And I'm like, even like the first time I was reading, I'm like, don't you mean abracadabra? Like, I mean, house. I can see it as a, as a parody, like abracadabra. Oh my God, I killed somebody. Um, and the whole time, like one of the things that Borden's been doing, is he's had his round red bouncy ball that has part of his character and he shows it around. He constantly is like showing it like and making it appear and disappear. When Cutter leaves the theater, he nods to somebody who's walking in the theater at the same time, who we do not see at first. We hear somebody enter the bot, the basement of the theater where the machine is, along with Angier. And a bouncy ball, the red bouncy ball, comes and bounces to his feet. And all of a sudden, Angier is shot and is revealed to be Borden. I believe this is the real Borden because he's the one who truly loves his daughter and is the one who really loved yeah. Sarah. And Fallon, or Fallon slash Borden was the one that was hanged early in the day mm. because when he's taken, being taken away by the prisoners, by the guards, he says, I'm sorry. I didn't love Sarah as much as you did. Cause that, because Fallon Borden, well, it's hard to keep it hard to keep. Yeah. That, that's why I'm like, you can't like quantify this. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, loved Olivia instead of Sarah. And so he reveals that, and we find out what Tesla's machine does. It's a cloning machine. So you're saying it's like Attack of the Clones. Roger, roger. <laughs> Begun the Clone War has. Okay. Ugh. Now, so we have two revelations in a matter of moments. Mm-hmm. Now, what, one of the things I feel about when Interstellar were the one things that kind of like People, it's like a hard pill to swallow at the end of that with the fifth dimension being love and being able to, in your hyper-dimensional cube where he's able to go back in time and affect uh, his life in certain ways. For some, for some people, it was hard to get their heads around or to buy. However, this, you have no problem that Tesla built a cloning machine at the turn of the century and then... Christian Bale's has a soap opera twist. That's what that was his secret the entire time. Why is it? Why do you think his audience was able to get by this, but some people had trouble with Interstellar's uh, thing? Um, I think a lot of the problems people have with Interstellar is because, or are because, um, space just like seems to be this foreign concept. To a lot of people, where uh, if they're watching the movie and they don't get space, I'm wondering why they're watching the movie to begin with. Right. Considering the title. Yes. Um. I also think that. Um. I get 19th century cloning machine by a scientist with like this, you know kind of notorious uh, persona about him is a little bit more believable 
Right. And like it almost like it's it almost it it seems more like science fiction that fits in with the time of the movie that's it's taking place in mm. rather than being this future concept that may or may not actually be even possible. Right. So like this thing like Batman Begins has a heavy science fiction edge yes. to it with the microwave emitter as the part of like kind of like a MacGuffin for the second half of the movie mm-hmm. and you go with that. You think it's kind of the same thing here that you kind of like, all right, yeah. I can I can go with that for it. Yeah, because you I mean, throughout the movie you're introduced to like these strange experiments that Tesla's doing with like, you know, um having wireless um, electricity, mm. uh, lighting up a light bulb just by sh- holding Angio's hand. Um, so you're introduced to that, um, this kind of surreal, almost, um, supernatural pseudoscience. Yeah. Or, um, I guess what would be the, uh, a better term than pseudo pseudoscience implies like a fake science. Um, it's like really um, abstract yeah, science mean, about the earth. Like you think of like science fiction, there's some people kind of break down science fiction into two camps. You have hard science fiction, you have then you have science fantasy. Hard science fiction, you think of people like Isaac Asimov or or like Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, who were like had a science background to begin with, and that kind of thought process and that those kind of ideas influenced their writing. Mm-hmm. And so, like, especially, like, all right, like, the mathematics would be involved and such. And then you have, like, science fantasy, where it's, like, Star Wars, where it's just like, all right, we're not going to really explain this. It just is. Yeah. And we're just going to go with it. <laughs> like the pus. Yes. The pus just is. The pus just is. You don't, you, you don't quantify the pus. The exactly. pus just is. Oh, I forgot. What, what, what was that uh, show? It was... A parody show on Adult Swim. Was twenty twenty one? I think it was twenty twenty two. Oh man, um, we need Lee Carlson here for these things. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm although he probably has no memory of it, considering how often we were drinking. That's true. <laughs> and so, at the end, Borden is reunited with his daughter, and presumed to have a normal life based upon the riches that he's accumulated as a magician and such, and all the. Angier clone bodies are left in their cases at the bottom of the theater. And that's how the movie ends. Now, what was your gut reaction as soon as that revelation hit you first time? I was stunned because I, like I said, you're told in the middle of a movie by Michael Caine what's going on, but you don't believe it because, like the final line of the movie says, you want to be fooled. Yeah. So I'm like, <gasps> okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And then once they explained everything, and then watching it again, I was like, okay, I definitely can see this. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, it's like, like oh, and like... Like a good book, like a good mystery novel, you just want to go all the way back to the beginning just to see how things were set up, and like how. And once you've seen all the payoffs, you want to see how all the things were set up in the beginning, and how you how you were fooled, how the wool was pulled over your eyes, and you're like, and you 
go on that journey again. You just want to get experience and you want to fall, fall in love with the story again in a different way. And I just find that really fascinating. Now, your favorite scene in this movie? Hmm. That's a good question. I know mine. You want me to go first? You go first. It has to be the opening sequence. Okay. It has to be the showing of the hats, the explaining of everything, the voiceover, and ending with Angier being drowned. The Angier number, I guess, 47 at that point or whatever, being drowned and Borden is trying to get him out. For some reason, and because it is Nolan speaking to the audience, not just Cutter speaking to the audience, he's, he's like... What it kind of sums up what filmmaking can be, mm-hmm. where this is the kind of components that go into a story. This is what goes into a movie, and you're willing to go along with it because you want it. Like like last the line at the end of the movie, you want to be fooled. And I'm watching it, and I couldn't get. I had watching it again this morning. I'm like, I had the biggest smile on my face because I'm like, I'm just like suspension of disbelief. I'm going for it. Like, I am ready to go on this journey, and like. Like his cliches, words, it felt very magical to me. I do not know why, but I'm just like, it was just like, wow, it's just perfect. So. My favorite scene, I think I would have to say, the end reveal. Not so much from Borden's point of view, but from the revelation that it's a cloning machine. Right. And like the scene where. He first gets cloned, for lack of a better word, in Colorado Springs. Mm. Um, and immediately his first instinct is to shoot the clone. Yeah. I'm like, you tell, you're, you're making, and you never find out which person is the clone or the original. Yeah, because he, cause he says, like, he that's himself the, doesn't know. Not until it's too late. Yeah. I mean,. Which brings up, like, the fact, like, okay, have you watched any Star Trek that much? No. But you know the idea of the transporter system where, like, it atomizes yes. you and you accumulate on <clears throat> in another location? Now, there is a theory based upon, like, I forget what science article my buddy Richard brought up once, um, where you technically die. Yes. And then you, your clone is the one who shows up re-atomizing your new location. And... The idea of like having that's why you have two Kirks is because that machine malfunctioned and that's why we have an evil Kirk and good Kirk at one point and whatnot. So and it's because it's like, no, you don't get to live on. You die at that point. Your clone gets to continue and you wonder like, all right. And he kind of brings up the whole question of existence and like and consciousness. Like, wait, how would I know I'm the clone? How would I know it's real? And then you just you're pulled back further and more and more existential crises are, are collapsing upon you when you yeah. have this kind of revelation there. And, and I love that moment when Angier is like, well, that's true courage that I'm going to walk into that machine because I don't know which one I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. And it's just fascinating because, like, that's another conversation you can just have upon hours. It's like, wait, if that's that and that's this, then how does this work? And, like, oh, no, I've gone cross-eyed in the words of Austin Powers. <laughs> um, now, okay, what would you say is your least favorite scene in this movie? Hmm. Or, or if there's, like, one scene or one aspect of the movie that kind of bothered you, then you just, like, something that is somewhat irksome. Not getting enough of Scarlett Johansson, I think, really hurts this movie. There's really no good use of any of the females in this movie. 
I, I mean, aside from Sarah, like because she gets the most scenes yeah. and she gets the act the most because yes. she, she gets the she gets meaty dramatic moments. But uh, that, as much as uh, the presence of Scarlett Johansson um, probably helped get the movie a little bit more commercial success mm-hmm. than it uh, would have if if it hadn't been. And then she's really underused. Yeah, from just. A character perspective, even if she goes off to spy for, um, to spy on Borden for Angier, mm. and then turns, like, into a double agent, or a, a triple agent? No, I just lied about being a double agent. Like, I thought you, I'm like, I said to myself, like, don't go there. Don't you fucking do it. I'm like, God damn it, he did. As Justin's re- referencing Red Letter Media's review of Crystal Skull. Oh my god terrible movie almost as terrible as scarlett johansson's use in this movie Ooh, that's harsh yeah. but maybe not that bad as I say. but i mean like when she's around angier she basically does nothing even though she admits to borden that she had fallen in love with angier and he was just like so obsessed with borden that he wrote her off yeah like she is his muse for a good part of the movie, and like she becomes kind of like kind of like a an emotional cheerleader for him, like say, "Hey, you've beaten him, like let it go." Yeah, and like obviously it's Angier's pride or need for revenge is that he's unable to move on, and like like you were saying before that, but I she says she fell in love with him, and I never like sold on the fact that she's in love with him, right. And maybe that's just another criticism of Nolan's writing. Tell me I love you. <laughs> I hate sand. There's... Do you know what's funny? It's not as bad as that, but it's... No, but you know, like, I ha- I ha- I can't, like, I've come to, like, a, a, a little bit of an understanding with Anakin Skywalker, especially in Attack of the Clones, because I had a moment where I said to myself, like, fuck, I wish I could just wish my feelings away. And I'm just like, but I can't. And I'm like, Jesus Christ! George, you're right. This is what it feels like. And so, yeah, so I'm a prequel defender. I, I, I know that I'm going to get so much hate for it, but you know what? I do not care. I can still enjoy those movies. But you can stare at me with all those dead eyes as much as you want. It's not going to change the fact that, and I enjoy parts of Crystal Skull because Spielberg's directing, he makes it look really good. I mean, I love the opening of Crystal Skull, like with the with the hound dog and the chase between yeah, the, the, rest of the, the hot rod. Everything after that's... Kind of downhill. <clears throat> <clears throat> the, the greasers and the like jock fight in the diner that kind of spills out into that motorcycle chase. The motorcycle chase is kind of awesome. But anyway, <sighs> which I can see that, like going back to Scarlett Johansson's character, like, you want her to be more in the movie because yeah. you know she's a good actress. Mm-hmm. You know she can hold her own, especially yeah. dealing with two Hugh Jackmans and uh, <laughs> not one, but two. Hugh, you, I'm Hugh. No, you're Hugh. Who are you? I don't know. Uh, uh, oh, oof, yeah, yeah. Huh? yeah. What? I don't know. I'm just I'm, what? No, I'm just just uh, babbling at this point. And you're just like, oh, I wish her to be in more of the movie. And um, and she become she be, does become an object at one point because she's there in like the like corsets in part of the shows and everything. And you're just like, ah, oh, you know you can do. Like we know as audience members that she can do more. Uh, probably for me, my least favorite scene is it's 
Sarah killing herself because I'm just like, yeah, I just feel better. Like, point. And I'm just like, she wouldn't abandon her daughter. I, 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 I don't think she would. Especially like this, I understand that she's gone a little mad dealing with the split personality of her husband over the course of a couple of years, and but like, would you want to leave your daughter in the hands of the person who's one thing one day and another another person another? Yeah, it, it seems a little far fetched to me. But I don't know if that's just based upon the story within the book, and they were just being, um. You know, we're also never told. We're never told how Sarah finds out that there are two people. Like, does she just have a calculated guess? Or did she see something? Or why is she so confident in what she believes that she she ends up wanting to schedule a meeting with uh, Olivia? I mean, you live the double life long enough. Like, you're going to leave... I guess trail somewhere. Uh, that's what I'm guessing where it's coming from. Uh, it's and be- even Olivia says, "Look, I've been around his studio. There are um, hair, makeup, hair, makeup, beards. Yeah. So, and you you write it off because like you've seen both of them use gabs like that throughout the movie. So you think, oh, okay, that's just his magician's wear when he's undercover. But mm-hmm. it's obvious that's just what him and Fallon been doing is taking places of each other throughout the movie. Um, so yeah, that scene I, I, I just really object to, but like, even with that, I still love this movie. I think it is still my favorite Nolan movie. Now, we both agreed that it's our favorite Nolan movie. Do you think it's his best? Yes. Okay. I do. For, for a lot of different reasons. Do you want to list yours first? Um... I think okay for like just like like I said before set up and payoff is just that it's like like Back to the Future you watch Back to the Future there's so much stuff set up and so much paid off and it's just beautiful like that performances are tremendous and it's like like how the first time I saw Inception and I'll get into that story the first time I saw Inception and what it meant to me um, like I, at the end of because I had like a half an hour before you like half an hour forty minutes before you got here so. I listened to the soundtrack and like like jumped in the shower and I'm thinking about it. Soundtrack for this movie? Yeah. Okay. And for because like a lot of people criticize David Julian's score because it's very atmospheric and it's yes. very it doesn't have like memorable themes like yes Zimmer's score for the Ellen Nolan movies or or like John Williams. But when I I came up with my own kind of like Hitchcockian thrill listening to that and I'm like, why does this movie made me want to be creative? It wanted me to make want me to make another movie. He wanted to make me a short like make another short film. And I'm like, I think that's a true testament for at least Nolan's work or any filmmaker or any artist that like inspires you to be proactive in some way. And for some reason this movie always does it for me and especially did that today. And it's I don't know, it's mesmerizing to me. And I think it doesn't have the faults because it's not that long. I mean, like, you could say it's an argument as a kind of a detriment to how long's the runtime in this? Like two fifteen, two ten, I think. Yeah, I mean, like easy, like no problem saying that. Like sometimes, like like you said before, like Interstellar, Rises, and Inception, they're kind of marathons. Yeah, they are. Nothing like like one or two of those movies that could be a detriment. I don't think that, for Inception, I don't think that's a detriment because you have such a complex yes story world to set up and to navigate through that makes sense. Like you need that time. Rises like. That could be a little bit shorter. 
Interstellar. I don't know if it needs to be that long, but we'll get to that later. So, yeah, I, I think, and just from a technical storytelling perspective, you just, like, you watch it fascinated. I know I feel like I'm repeating myself here, but that's what I, that's why I think it's his best. Why do you think it's his best movie? Um, I think, first of all, the cast really helps. Mm. I think everyone in this movie um, brings their A-game from... Christian Bale from uh, Hugh Jackman, Michael Caine, even, you know, guys like Andy Serkis and um, David Bowie. Just incredible, incredible stuff from everyone. Secondly, as you said, um, perfect, uh, a perfect case of there not being too much story. Without, you know, leaving you wanting more. Mm. This, it's like in that Goldilocks zone of like just the right amount of everything. A little bit of um, mystery, a little bit of um, science fiction, a little bit of um, just personal drama involved. Mm. You get this really good conflagration of... um, emotions in, in this movie. Right. The reason why I think it's my, it's his best movie, um, the writing is superb. Um, one of the problems that, um, Batman has is you get like these really stupid lines from, um, most notably during the chase scenes with the police officers, you get these lines that just, like, make no sense. Mm. And they take away from the drama of the scene. I think they're meant to be funny, and it just... Doesn't work. Fails. Um, I can't think of a really... St- like, as much as we make fun of the, uh, like, you don't know stuff, mm-hmm. like... Okay, I, it makes sense for his character to be, like, that bewildered. Yeah. It makes sense for, um, for, uh, you know, he does try so very hard as he's, like, walking off after he's had his, like, huge victory mm. in front of a gigantic audience. Nothing really feels out of place with those dialogue bits. No. The humor hits when it's supposed to. There's some really damning lines about Angier that hit when it's supposed to. Mm. Just nothing from this movie takes me out of it. Gotcha. And, yeah, it's like, if it's like the old writing stage, if it's not on the page, it ain't on the stage. And mm-hmm. it's just the storytelling based on, like, the book and then, like, it, Jonathan and Christopher Nolan's screenplay for this is just awesome. And it's, it's just tremendous. And, that's what was the building block for this movie, and I just felt like, and all the detail, like the cinematography, this, the costuming, the music. I think it was just it's such a perfect culmination for his career, and sure, like he became a bigger and bigger filmmaker after, like with, like I said, with The Dark Knight, um, Inception, Rises, Interstellar, and this like, and I'm curious like what Dunkirk's gonna be like, because it's like, sure, it's like, see, I, I'm, from what I've seen of Dunkirk. And what I've heard about with 
a relatively short running time, uh, but still a really good cast um, with all the usual suspects mm-hmm. that a Nolan film has. I mean, I'm sort of getting that vibe where it could be um, maybe not as good as um, The Prestige is, but maybe, uh, you know, hopefully somewhere around that level. It seems more focused because, spoilers everybody, well, the Film Society, the Lincoln Center in New York City, is showing Dunkirk on 70mm film before the general release on July 21st. Um, and lucky enough, I was able to get two tickets for Justin and I, and especially with the Q&A by Nolan after the screening of it. So we're excited for that. And so and I, when I was on the website and it said like 147 minutes, and, or, or like, you know, it's like a little over, no, maybe it's like, it was like an hour and 47 minutes or like, then some people say it's close to two hours. And I'm like, okay, that seems fair. And, and especially, I think. The criticism you could have with against like rises and interstellar, like it doesn't seem as focused. Like sort of like they just wrote so much, yeah. And since so he has so much clout and carte blanche with his because of his successes, that he's able to get away with that. And I, that's probably gonna be my question for him, if I get a chance to ask him the question is like, was this a conscious decision to write a shorter movie on your behalf because you wanted to do that in a certain way because of like your previous movies being a little bit longer than usual. And like, was that a choice? And if so, why? Why did you make that challenge for yourself? And see, and see what his answer is. So mm-hmm. that's one thing. If I get the chance to answer my question, and if he does answer it, I will re- I will recount it to everybody listening on this episode, or listen on that episode where we do the Dunkirk review. You know, thinking about this movie, this is one of the few Nolan movies. Dunkirk is, I think, only going to be a second movie that's going to be. A period, period, a period piece? Not only a period piece, but an English piece. Okay. Uh, con- taking place in England. Right. And well, or, I guess, for Dunkirk, also in France. Yes. But, you know, within eyesight of England. Right. And, um... And with mainly English characters. Right. And not just English actors playing, like, American roles right. or anything like that. Because if you look at, um... Actually, well, the following, that took place in London, too. Right, yeah, but I mean, that was... But I, I don't think, you know, you, you ask a random person on a street, have they seen following, they're probably going to say, uh, no. And well, please get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you following me? Yeah. That would be the question. But like, you know, Memento... And, and when they walk away, I'll scream at them, you don't know? But Memento, um, Insomnia... All of the Batman movies, um, Interstellar and Inception, neither of them are, neither of them take place in England. Right. I mean, like, Batman Begins was partially shot in England, like, on the back lots and, like, Pinewoods and everything, but, like, it was supposed to be set in America and everything. So, yeah, like, I wonder if, that, if that'll, that'll have a different influence on the movie itself. So, final thoughts. <sighs> If you have not watched this movie, and somehow, our third compañero, who is not here today, Chris Maffei, has not seen this movie. Well, he hasn't seen a lot of movies, so like, and, 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 he, he, and he takes pride when we show things to him. So that's true. So this is one thing we got to show. We've got to see this to him. Hopefully, he hasn't listened to this because he's just we just we just ruined the damn thing. Yeah. So don't listen to this. <laughs> we should text him before this goes up and yeah. say, "Hey, don't listen to hey. the review." Until you've watched the movie. 
So, well, I'll make sure to do that. But uh, go on. Um, I, I, trying to describe this movie to someone is like trying to describe Christmas to them. Like if they've never heard about Christmas before, it's like picture the perfect combination of brilliant writing, a cast that brings everything, and a really captivating story with a a told by a director who has his personal touch in this movie mm. by making it nonlinear. Right. It's just you, you'll be hard pressed to find. You know, a movie that does as many things well as this movie. Yeah, I mean, wow, you really summed up perfectly. I mean, it's this perfect construction from storytelling on the page, and it came about on the stage, and it definitely happened again when it's on the screen. Was all cut together. Yeah, it's it's him firing all cylinders. It's him like the height of his power, pretty much. And like I said, it's just this warm kind of feeling and I just like I, I just get such a charge from it that I'm just like I need to create like I need to step up my game and I think that's one of the best things that can happen in this movie so yeah so I hope everybody's enjoyed this review of The Prestige and if you want to follow us on social media Justin where can they find you? You can follow me at Justin Cirillo on Twitter where um I've, I've done a lot of tweeting about Nolan lately watching, you don't say uh, watching the uh the Prestige mm-hmm. and tweeting about it. Right. I should live tweet more things I watch. Yes. Aside from just sports. Right. Um, and if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012, my Facebook and YouTube page under the same banner, Through the Lens Productions, where my short film Cat Call is up as part of the 15-second horror movie challenge. Uh, I have another movie uh, coming out, a film noir called Cash Grab, which I will be hopefully up soon. And, uh, yeah, and if you want to help support the show, go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and subscribe to us, and give us a written review so you can get the word out there if you enjoyed this episode and enjoyed this review and want us to continue to go forward because, sure, we, of course, love talking to us, and I obviously listen back to the podcast, and if I find it entertaining, I hope somebody else out there can find it entertaining. But, uh, yeah, so... Knowing that we have people out there will definitely help us step up our game and want to entertain people because we just love to – because I love to entertain people. I know you enjoy making people laugh and such with your uh, type of humor. (laughs) When I tell my type of humor, it's a bonus if people laugh. (laughs) All right. That's true. So I hope everybody's enjoyed this review of The Prestige. And come back next time. We'll be talking hopefully about Nolan and other uh, geek and pop culture stuff. Justin, thank you for being part of this episode. Again, thanks for having me, Tim. All right. I hope everybody's enjoyed this episode. And abracadabra. Anything goes. Are you watching this thing?